0: Good evening. My name is Mary Morris, and on behalf of the Pan American Center, I would like to welcome you to this evening's of readings, which is part of French Fiction Week. A great many people have made this evening's event possible, and I'd like to take the opportunity to thank some of them. In particular, I would like to thank the cultural services of the French Embassy, especially Jean-Marie Guenot, the cultural counselor, and Frédéric Berthet, the cultural attaché, who did an enormous amount of work to provide for the... French writers who we have with us this evening. I would also like to thank Dr. Dr. Vartan Gregorian, president of the New York Public Library, and his staff who provided this space and who helped with the arrangements for this evening. And I would like to remind you that tomorrow night, Thursday, November 7th, at 7.30, there will be a panel discussion on the topic of new directions in French fiction. This will be moderated by Jerome Charon, and the panel will be held at the uh, CUNY Graduate Center Auditorium, 33 West 42nd Street. Tonight I have the pleasure of introducing to you the person who will introduce the French writers, Francine DuPlexis Gray. Francine DuPlexis Gray was born in France of a French father and a Russian mother. She came to the United States in 1941. She began her career as a journalist in the 1950s, for UPI, and L, and has in the past decades written extensively for the New Yorker, the New York Times, the New York Review of Books. She has also taught at City University of New York, Columbia, Yale, and next year will have the Ferris Chair at the Institute of the Humanities Council at Princeton University, where she will teach a course entitled Writing Autobiography, from St. Augustine to Roland Barthes. Her most recent books are novels Lovers and Tyrants, World Without End, and October Blood. Her French heritage has played a great role in her life and is reflected in her frequent trips to France and in the various articles she has written, such as her award-winning articles on Klaus Barbie, Barbie excuse me, and the recent cover story in the New York Times Sunday Magazine on her French family. She has been interested in young writers in general and has attempted to keep up with contemporary French literature. Francine Duplexis Gray. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Mary. Um, some of us are interpreting tonight's event as a reflowering of uh, the novel form in France, and others of us are interpreting it as a reflowering of American interest in the French novel form. I think that this uh, particular theme belongs more to to tomorrow's symposium, and I just want to make a few observations on this extraordinary, distinguished, and varied group of writers whom we're welcoming tonight. Um, A few uh, features of these writers strike me in particular as I read their biographies. One, the prolific nature of their production and the vitality and generosity with which they give themselves to numerous literary genres outside the novel form, to journalism, to scholarly critical studies, to essays, a proliferation of genres which, in almost all these cases, gives us a true model of the person of letters in the great European tradition. Um, Another feature that strikes me is that, uh, alongside this diversity of literary genres, uh, one notices that um, none of these writers suffers from that ivory tower syndrome which many American writers have been accused of suffering from. As you may know, almost no French author uh, teaches as a means of livelihood. As a matter of fact, the publication of books may be a... a uh, may reduce the chance of being offered a university post in France. At the contrary, they support themselves by a variety of occasions, which in, case, in the case of this group is very, very varied. Uh, one is a museum curator, in the case of uh, Monsieur Hockard, uh, others by political journalism, by filmmaking. Uh, they are a group of writers who I find are uh, really steeped perhaps more steeped in the toil and turmoil of the human condition than many of our American colleagues. And this richness of uh, life, I think, is reflected in their work. I shall, uh, uh, without any further ado, introduce the first reader in our group. I have tried to give little profiles of each of the writers which is not given in the press from brief interviews which I've had with them. Pascal Bruckner is referred to in the French press as the most eclectic of the writers tonight. He certainly works in the greatest variety of genres, as a novelist, as a sociologist, as an essayist, and as a political journalist. His novel, Bitter Moon, is described by his publishers as a rite of passage from, uh, from from an obsessed trio of lovers Um, during a mysterious sea voyage. This is the fourth trip uh, to the United States. A few years ago, he spent uh, some months at the University of California at Berkeley, which he enjoyed immensely. Um, I wish that I can uh, see soon the uh, translations of his non-fiction texts. Uh, They include a book called Les Sanglots de l'Homme Blanc, The Sobs of the White Man, which he describes as a destruction of the myths created by 1968 and an accounting of the West's culpability for the turmoil of the third world. Another book which I would like to read is one uh, called The Nouveau Désordre Amoureux, which uh, has been translated into nine foreign languages, but not yet into English, and which pertains to the changing nature of human relations between men and women in particular, and uh, spend some time describing the effect of the women's movement in the past decade on the lives of men. I shall just end with a uh, um, comment that um, I'm happy to hear that Mr. Bruckner's view of feminism is uh, positive, that it has affected uh, men's lives in the most positive way. However, he feels that it is a thing of the past, the historic movement which is over. It has, as he puts it, died from its own success. Monsieur Bruckner travels greatly, particularly to India, where he goes every year, and uh, may um, does journalistic pieces for many magazines. He is um, um, has a system for alternating... A book of nonfiction and a book of fiction, a book of nonfiction and a book of fiction, which I think is a model of energy and uh, vitality, which is incorporated in his work. And he will, he will read tonight from uh, the book, which I believe will be uh, translated um, and published next spring by Grove Press, um, called Bitter Moon. Is that right? It is.
2: So I would like first to apologize for my English Because I'm going to read in English I hope you will uh, like my French accent I would like also to say that uh, this translation is just an approximate one And it's not a definite text this is the first six pages of my uh, novel called A Bit of Moon. In my case, sir, eternity began four years ago, one July evening on bus 96 that plies between Montparnasse and Porte de Lila. At the stop of Odeon Square, a young girl dressed in a black flounce skirt, her ankles covered by long white socks sat down opposite me i stared at her right away i was literally dazed by her face and held my breath as i looked at it i don't know what struck me the most about it whether the color of the cheeks a milk-like blend which i admired or the lashes that were gently screening her green eyes from indiscreet looks i didn't see her I was blinded, I was hypnotized. My only desire was to accost her, my only terror that I would lose sight of her. I think that my glances must have been too admiring, too insistent, for the lovely stranger started to smile impatiently and soon turn her head the other way. So I was afraid for a moment that she would change her seat. I interpreted her reticence as gentility. This only magnified a worse. Don't laugh because the encounter took place on a bus. There is no ideal setting for love at first sight. Paradise wedding room can be any old rolling box when one is prepared to, trans- to trust one's luck. I always prefer those whom one meets by chance to acquaintance made through friends. I believe fate arranged that meeting and will continue to impregnate it mysteriously. Besides, only the unforeseen can rekindle one's lust for life. My terror then had its origin in my own muteness, in the silence which I had been unable to break, in the bitter realization that I had spoiled a wonderful face-to-face opportunity. How is an endless repetition of the same old word to be avoided? How can one seem all at once gentle, original, alluring and a tempter? It's a serious it's a s- serious question, one that I assume the devil put to himself on the last evening of creation. A conductor came to the rescue. I'll never be grateful enough to the ERATP. This is a French a Parisian uh, company of buses, I want to specify. I'll never be grateful enough to the RATP for its cooperation. When he demanded our tickets, my attractive neighbor claimed she had lost hers. That is, what, that is was somewhere on the floor. While I bent down with some other passengers to search for the little yellow paper, the conductor started to prepare his report. The young woman lowered her eyes and blushing artfully, feigning embarrassment. I saw through this sham, but found her hole the more attractive for it. Having just shown my own ticket to the conductor, I waited till nobody was looking to slip it into her hands. For an instant, she was perplexed. Then she smiled. The conductor went away. My tactics, tactics had succeeded. Our tale had a beginning. After such an episode, you will understand why I refuse all free rides on public vehicles. <laughs> the pretty cheat pressed my hand appre- appreciatively, but made the frightful mistake of giving me back my ticket. A woman, a base foal was crest was an aggressive permanent, had been spying on us, and noticing our deception, held the conductor. When the bus reach, reached the next stop at St. Paul. I had only a few seconds to thumb my nose at our informer and jump off. I felt lost and angry enough to cry. My accomplice was being swept out of sight while the bus, plunging her head on its course, left me behind with one raised hand, motioning desperately to her. I wandered about like a soul in hell. So Paris isn't a big city, it can, like a pit, swallow anyone into its depths. I had but one desire, after that moment, to see her again, to find her at any price, even if it took the whole summer. The man who spoke these words was next to me in the cabin of a sheep. We were far out at sea on the Mediterranean. Night had fallen. Seated in an armchair, legs covered by a blanket, he moved his anxious, wandering eyes, which rested at interv- intervals on mine. His distorted face gave no indication of his age and still showed some traces of youth. There emanated from his whole being a strange anxiety and unremitting nervousness. So I managed to be distant on that first night. I took a dislike to France which was from our first meeting as strong as his power over me. However, I was still far from having penetrated his consciousness and perversity. All I did was listen to the regular flow of his sentences, to his grating voice, to the melancholy accompaniment of a humming tea kettle. Yet I think that I ought to specify the circumstances of this encounter. I had just turned thirty. I was living for India with Beatrice, my companion. We were happy, having convinced, convinced ourselves that our quest for a particular truth had begun. On the morning of December 28th, in 1979, we sailed aboard the Truva. This Turkish vessel made stops at Naples, Venice, and Piraeus. Besides, it was the last maritime link between France and Istanbul. Despite the fact that we certainly wanted to get away for a few months, each feeling the need to flee from a boring occupation. I taught literature in a Paris lycée, and Beatrice was a professor of Italian. It was, above all, a magnetic force which attracted us to the Orient. For me, this very world had a fine gold dust. It represented a new down, thrilling and radiant. In my excitement, I was tuned to the East as to an undefined splendor, and I think there was a devotional origin to my longing for far-off places. I was going to Asia to find a sacred disorder which Europe no longer offered me, so as to abandon everything that was not indispensable. We had been planning this trip for a long time. I had taken a year's leave of absence from the state-run educational system. But before we embarked, I had to take a summer job, job in an insurance company. We had chosen the Truva because it would take us as far as India in short stages, allowing us to idle all we wanted along the way, And at little expense, moreover, since the vessel was not doing much business and would soon be dismantled. Now picture for yourself a sea voyage at the outset amid much hope and irresolution. An ocean liner, regardless of how unpretentious it is, is more than a means of travel. It is a state of mind. As soon as one gets past the gangway, one's vision of everything changes. One becomes a citizen of a private republic and enjoys that exclusiveness, which brings the idol together. In the corridors, I liked immediately the way the noises were deadened and the heavy mustiness, a mixture of sea odors and heated rubber, which lingered there. Our ship was an old Norwegian craft the Turks had recommissioned, and with its smoke, smoke planted symbol-like along the center, it was anything but a mastodon. As I looked in our cabin, at the tired, the tired bunks and the minute wash basin, but especially at the two metal partition wedging us in, I felt we had been confined in a narrow closet. What a beautiful vote, said Beatrice. You take the upper sarcophagus and I will sleep in the lower one. Against the iron framework of the wash basin, the toothbrush glass was clanging rhythmically. Every part of our small den shook with the engine vibrations. We had modest quarters, but the thought of a bit of playful, amorous promiscuity made up for the lack of luxury and space. Besides, there was a porthole. For this, I have always felt a particular attraction, that of seeing everything and, at the same time, never being seen. This round object is a small keyhole through which, while facing the silent monster, From a secure position, one detects the ocean secrets and outwits the hostility of the liquid elements. The immense must be looked into through this aperture diaphragm, and with curtains on either side, it becomes becomes even more exciting as the cabins start to resemble a doll's house. Also behind such blinds, there are always peopled places. Animated beings, a thousand intersecting destinies. Moreover, the morning on which we sailed from Marseille, the weather was miraculously splendid. The rays of the sun beat down on the hull sides, and beneath its fire, the cheap paint sparkled like a lump of sugar. I was happy we had the lights; that is a god's blessing, and I saw it as a good omen for the rest of the trip. We favored sudden icy gusts and a land breeze heavily spiced with pine forest odors. Far off, other steamers, small as toys, were ferroving the smooth horizon. I had never experienced such bliss. I felt steered by pure sentiments as I gazed at the French coastline, farther and farther away, becoming increasingly vague behind a brilliant mist. All the same, I was still afraid at times that I was living in a dream. It was hard for me to check my elation. The first 24 hours of our five-day crossing struck me as a period which was extraordinary for its joyous emptiness. Everyone knows that even so nothing ever happens on a boat, there still prevails aboard an unusually valuable boredom that resembles euphoria. The slightest platitude in my conversations with Beatrice, since it was woven woven into the context of our departure, acquired a talismanic power. This odyssey was going to be our spiritual rebirth, and we marked it with lofty utterances on the wide expanse of the decks, oblivious to anyone else, completely self-absorbed. Okay, thank you.
1: credit, I think, at the end and perhaps uh, I will have a more complete list, the excellent translators who have made these readings possible. I am now have the task of introducing Régine de Forge, who strikes me as a veritable maelstrom, a hurricane of female energy. Régine de Forge has worked in the past 20 years as a publisher, an editor, a bibliophile, a, uh, a in a um, of pictures, a corrector of rare books, as well as a novelist. She uh, is the mother of three children aged 28, 19, and 6. She has published some six novels in the past five years. Uh, she was born in the Poitou, and uh, like many writers of erotic novels, she had a rigorous Catholic education at a convent school. She has also been very closely linked with the feminist movement in France, and so it is uh, one, the one moment when I will dwell on this issue in her thought. Um, she had an interesting comment to make to me yesterday about the major lines of difference between American and French schools of feminism. She finds that American women's movement has been more structured politically and more effective on a grassroots level, on the other hand, She feels that uh, it has been uh, afflicted, our American movement, by a certain kind of man-hating which she finds deplorable and a kind of Amazonist streak that she dislikes and which she terms ridiculous and insupportable. And uh, she uh, deplores those analysts of the... um, women's movement, who are currently saying it has come to an end, that it has been. Therefore, I think she would find strong differences from those views of Monsieur Bruckner on the issue. She finds that at the contrary, if we see the feminist movement as a has-been, that it will uh, thrust us back into the stone age of the 1950s, and that we have not begun to attain the power that is due to us. Finally, she is a uh, um, kind of feminist, a centrist feminist who believes intensely in the solidarity and the beauty of family life and what she calls the sensuality of family life, a quality with attitude which she also finds lacking among many women feminists. Um, even though, I mean American feminists, even though she has had a phenomenal Uh, commercial success with her last novels. For instance, the third volume of the trilogy, which began with The Blue Bicycle, uh, had a publication, a first printing of 400,000 copies in France last spring, which sold out in one day. Now, what is even more remarkable to me, and more moving and more touching, that notwithstanding this enormous commercial success, she, just a few months ago, started a new publishing house, and that she so is in love with the art and craft of editing, that she's something that she will always be addicted to. She told me, I've never taken a drug in my life. My only drug is editing. So um, since uh, Regine did not want her, her uh, to read her own text, I'm sure her English is good, but she prefers it to be read. I offered to read it for her. This is from chapter 14 of... Uh, the Blue set Bicycle, which will be or La Bicicette Bleue, which we published by Lars Stewart next year. By the time they stopped for lunch at about one o'clock, they had covered about 20 miles. At the little village washhouse, they were able to refresh themselves, which made them all feel a little better. Camille was pale and her face drawn. She did not complain once, although from time to time... Beads of sweat broke out on her brow. The old woman, whose name they did not know, kept nodding beneath her widow's hat, repeating endlessly, «Michel, take care of the children. Georgia, Loïc, come back!» «Shut her up!» exploded Lea. «Shut her up!» Camille put her arms around the hunched shoulders of the old woman. «Don't worry, madame. Georges and Loïc are with their mother. Michel, take care of the children!» Camille wearily covered her eyes with her hand that had become so thin she had removed her wedding ring for fear of losing it. You don't know how to deal with people who are sick in the head, said Josette, tapping her forehead with a finger. She took the old man's woman's arm and shook her mercilessly. You'd better shut up, Ma, or we'll leave you by the roadside. We'll you'll see your George and your Loic all right. In hell. Josette, aren't you ashamed of yourself talking to a poor old woman like that? Let her go, cried Camille. Reluctantly, the red-faced girl obeyed. For a while, everyone ate their hard-boiled egg or their slice of sausage in silence, while the pathetic procession continued to wend its way under the burning sun. Even the old woman said nothing. She was drowsy. It's time to move, said Mathias. It was night when they reached the outskirts of Orléans. There was not a shop, not a house open. The inhabitants had fled from there too. The main streets had been bombed. A violent storm suddenly broke, hampering the progress of the masses of people marching towards their unknown destination. Everyone sheltered as best they could, and some had no qualms about breaking down the doors of abandoned houses. The storm stopped as suddenly as it had begun. Dark shadows emerged from the looted houses carrying clocks, paintings, vases, caskets, and other treasures. They did not even try to conceal their spoils. The plunderers had begun their sinister work. "'I'm afraid we'll have to spend the night in the corps,' said Mathias. They had not moved an inch in the last hour. "'Mademoiselle, mademoiselle, madame is fainted.' "'What can I do about it? Try and get her to swallow her medicine.' Josette took the phial Lea had put out, and poured the mixture into the cup from the thermos flask. Slowly, Camille came around. They crept forward a few feet. The crowd moved down the main street like a flock of sheep. There were people on either side of the car, in front and behind, their heads bowed under the weight of their burdens and their exhaustion. Were it not for the noise of engines and cartwheels and the slow marching of thousands of feet, they would have looked like a herd of ghosts, marching towards some obscure destination in the black night. To their right, the street was almost empty. The suffering and fear were so oppressive that the crowds huddled together instinctively. As for the drivers of the carts and cars, they fell asleep in their seats. They reached a crossroads and Matthias turned, advancing slowly in the dark, the headlights extinguished for fear of planes. They arrived in a district that had suffered in a recent air raid. A smell of damp soot and musty cellars rose from the blackened ruins, and in spite of the closeness, Leah shivered. They stopped in a little square surrounded by linden trees, which the bombs had spared. They got out of the car and stretched their stiff legs. They all went to relieve themselves behind the trees. Josette helped Camille to lie down on a patch of grass. I'm cold, murmured Camille, the maid returned to the car for a traveling rug and covered her. Camille thanked her with a sad smile. Her hands clenched over her stomach. Do you need anything else, madame? Camille shook her head and closed her eyes. The old woman, with no name, went wandering off down a rubble-filled street. Michel, take care of the children, she said. Mathias and Lea walked around the square, their arms around each other's waists. They came to a little garden where the air was heavy with the sickly, sweet scent of roses. Matthias pushed open a little wooden gate. They found themselves under a rose arbor with clusters of what they guessed to be white roses climbing everywhere. They sat down on a white bench on which someone had left some cushions and took deep breaths of the fragrant air. How far away the war seemed at that moment. All they had to do was close their eyes and it felt like Montillac. The stone bench still warm from the afternoon sun, looking out over the vineyards and leaning up against the wall where the climbing rose bowed under the weight of so many fragrant white bla- blooms. It was a compulsory resting place on those long summer evenings when the setting sun gilded the old stone buildings, the roof tiles on the outhouses and the wooden planks of the shed. It was the moment when a feeling of peace rose up from the earth and was shared by all the inhabitants of Montillac. Matthias held Leah closer. For the first time in ages, Leah felt safe in the arms of her childhood friend. She remembered their romps in the hay, their games in the long grass in the meadows, their drunken merriment during the grape harvest, their horse rides through the vineyards, their bicycle races down the hill when they went to explore the gestures at Saint the grottoes at St. Macaire and the dungeon of the chateau at Cadillac. She shuddered. Their lips met violently, their teeth clashed, their breath mingled. They poured into their kiss all their passionate lust for life. Matthias' strong, rough hands with his filthy nails practically tore off Lea's flimsy blouse. Her white silk slip was clinging to her skin. The strap slipped off her shoulders, revealing her breasts. Her nipples pressed against Matthias' sweaty, khaki shirt. The rough cloth made them harden while, with a groan, Matthias plunged down to take them in his mouth. Gently, <coughs> Leah pushed his head away. Please stop, Matthias. Why? It's so intense, she replied. Don't you want any more? Yes, I do, but wait. They were sure they had their whole lives in front of them as they lay on the wooden bench in their crumpled clothes, their heads flung back, intoxicated by the smell of the roses. The clock struck two. Leah, you need some sleep. Without bothering to adjust her slip, Leah stretched out on the bench and put her head on matthias's thigh. She fell asleep at once. For a long time, he tenderly watched her sleep. All around them was darkness. Only Lea's white breasts glowed faintly. To avoid temptation, Matthias pulled up her slip and buttoned up her blouse. Then he lit a cigarette. As a small break in this reading, I want to mention that uh, uh, our French friends will travel beyond New York after uh, they leave the city, that uh, Madame Desforges will go to Miami this weekend where she will attend the Miami Book Fair. Uh, Monsieur Bruckner, uh, Monsieur Schnoes, and Miss Muray will leave for Houston on uh, Sunday where they're invited by, French, by uh, the French department at Rice University. And Monsieur Ocar is invited by the World Bank in association with the International Poetry Forum and the World's Word, Illiterate, and Arts Publication of the Staff of the World Bank in Washington, D.C. And I think this is the most extraordinary program for these writers, and our uh, consulate is to be congratulated on arranging such a good and rich week for the writers. I must next introduce Frédéric Tristan, who was born in 1931 in the Ardennes, and uh, whose recent novel received uh, his country's most prestigious literary prize, the Prix Goncourt, somewhat analogous to our Pulitzer. Uh, It will be translated in um, English as, what is the title you have now? The Lost Ones. As The Lost Ones. This rich and complex novel uh, spans the two decades between the two world wars and includes as settings uh, Spain and New York City of 1930 it is interesting to note that many of these writers have described New York uh, without ever having been here or have set their novels their fictions in the United States without having visited this country it's as if there is a kind of permanent mythic role of the United States in the French mind which is very fixed and um Mr. Tristan uh, had to do a bit of research to describe the New York of the 1930s. Um, he studied political science at the University of Toulouse and uh, came to Paris uh, in the late 60s. Um, like Pascal Bruckner, he is a keen student of the Orient, a specialist in Buddhist and Taoist thought, and a specialist in mystical Philosophies, and uh, has edited several editions called *Les Cahiers de l'Hermétisme*, or a series on hermetic philosophers. Uh, Monsieur Frédéric Tristan will um, read a few passages from his novel in um, uh, French, I believe, and and uh, then his translator will. Um, Read the rest in English.
3: Uh, the,
4: the scene takes place in thirty. Um,
3: si vous le permettez, je vais vous raconter une histoire moins spectaculaire. So fut en France. Me voulez-vous bien ?»« Allons pour la France » m'exclamai-je. Il reprit. « Les Français sont des gens curieux. Ils vous promettent des cathédrales qui se révèlent des baraques foraines. Mais lorsqu'on croit qu'ils n'ont rien fait, c'est alors qu'ils vous livrent le château de Versailles. Sans doute tout cela tient-il par des ficelles et du sparadrap, Mais cela tient suffisamment pour ne pas vous soir sur la tête. De même à les entendre, rien n'est pire que leur pays et leur gouvernants, Mais que vous ayez l'impudence de mésestimer ce qu'ils viennent eux-mêmes de vilipender, et ils vous clouent le bec avec une verdeur sans pareille. Bref, je fus reçu à Paris en avril par une délégation de fins museaux Gastronomes en diable, faiseurs de bons mots, incapables d'articuler une seule syllabe anglaise, mais fiers de leurs citations grecques ou latines. Tout ce monde fleuri était président, à croire qu'il n'existait là aucun membre. D'ailleurs, le premier geste d'amitié que l'ont à me prodiguer fut de me décorer, Après quoi, on y a là de quelques discours que visiblement personne n'écoutait. Chacun étant trop absorbé par les victuailles, les boissons et le décolleté de ses dames.
4: But if you'll permit me, I'll tell you another less spectacular story. It was in France this time. Would you like me to? Right, France it is. I, I exclaimed... He continued, The French are curious people. They promise you cathedrals which turn out to be puppet booths. But just when you think they've done nothing at all, that's when they serve you up the Chateau de Versailles. No doubt it's all held together with strings and sticking plasters, but it does hold together well enough not to collapse on your head. And then, to hear them, nothing is worse than their country and their governments but if you should be so impudent as to disesteem what they themselves have just vilified, they shut you up with matchless contumely. In short, I was received in Paris in April by a delegation of distinguished mugs, devilish gastronomes and makers of bon mots, incapable of articulating one syllable of English, but proud of their Latin and Greek quotations. The whole florid society was president, you'd think there wasn't a member there. Moreover, the first friendly gesture they insisted on bestowing upon me was to decorate me, after which they treated me to some long-winded speeches which, plainly, no one was listening to, as everyone was too absorbed in the victuals, the drink, and the ladies' bosoms.
3: Passons à New York, demandez-je. Il vida un troisième verre de Dramboui et commença. À New York, pas de discours, aucun apparat. Une ruée d'hommes d'affaires dont certains étaient des manières d'analphabètes, tout excités à l'idée de faire de l'argent avec votre cher Chesterfield. Faire de l'argent. Voilà le seul souci, l'horizon unique, la borne de toute pensée. Il est vrai que la crise économique est à son comble et que le commerce du livre demeure un des secteurs où il se passe encore quelque chose. Tout le reste stagne et s'écroule. Des faillites partout. Le chômage. Ce n'est plus la belle et forte Amérique, vive et conquérante d'il y a cinq ans. Bref, un nommé Bradison, entrepreneur de spectacle décida de monter l'an prochain Belzebole à Broadway. « Combien ?» me demanda-t-il. J'étais surpris. « Ma réponse, demain, » répondis-je. On parle ici avec une économie de mots qui confine à la pauvreté. Il sortit, puis deux minutes plus tard, réapparut. « Combien » répéta-t-il, de plus en plus surpris. « Demain, » répondis-je encore.  « « Il ressort. Mais un quart d'heure plus tard, nouvelle apparition. Combien Je commençais de m'énerver. « Demain, à 15 heures, dis-je d'un ton sans réplique. » Il s'en alla. « Vous êtes très fort, » remarqua l'éditeur Bromfield qui m'accompagnait. Résister ainsi à Bradisson. » Je n'osais lui révéler que si je n'avais rien répondu, c'était simplement par le fait que je n'avais aucune idée du monde en des droits d'adaptation que je pouvais demander.
4: Let's get on to New York I urged. He emptied a third glass of drambuie and began In New York no speeches no ceremony a swarm of businessmen some of them illiterates of one sort or another all excited at the idea of making money with your dear Chesterfield making money that is their only concern the sole horizon, the extent of all thought. It is true that the Depression is at its worst and that the book trade remains one of the only sectors in which anything is still happening. All the rest stagnates and crumbles, bankruptcies everywhere, unemployment. It is no longer the beautiful and strong, lively and conquering America of five years ago. In short, someone named Braddison, a theater impresario, decided to produce Beelzebub on Broadway next year. How much, he asked me. I was surprised. My answer, tomorrow, I replied. One talks there with an economy of words that limits one to poverty. He left, then two minutes later, reappeared. How much, he repeated. More and more surprised, tomorrow, I answered again. He left again. But 15 minutes later, another appearance. How much? It was beginning to get on my nerves. Tomorrow at three. I said in a tone that broke no reply. He went away. You're very tough, remarked pu- the publisher of Bromfield, who had accompanied me, to hold out on Braddison like that. I did not dare reveal to him that if I, that if I hadn't answered, it was simply because I had no idea what fee for the adaptation rights I could ask.
3: He à cette this et and I à Bromfield... « Combien vous a-t-on réglé pour Rosemary » C'était le grand spectacle à la mode tiré d'un roman que cet éditeur avait publié. « 200 000 dollars », me répondit-il avec fierté. Le lendemain à 15 heures, réapparition du sieur Bradison. Alors, j'allumai calmement un cigare et laissai tomber. « 300 000 dollars. » Il reprit sa respiration avec peine et demanda discussion possible. Je soufflais une somptueuse bouffée de cigare vers le plafond et avec le même laconisme, non. Fiche simplement. Il se gratta le sommet du crâne avec une vivacité remarquable, puis se précipitant vers moi la main tendue, à faire conclut, monsieur Chesterfield 20 % demain, 20 % en septembre. Le solde par traite en décembre, janvier, février. Okay? Incroyable, n'est-ce pas?
4: He smiled at this evocation and continued. I asked Bromfield, how much did you settle on for Rosemary? It was all the theatrical rage at the time taken from the novel that he had published. $200,000, he replied proudly. The next day, at three o'clock, the reappearance of Mr. Bradison. So, I calmly lit a cigar and let fall. Three hundred thousand. He got his breath with difficulty and asked, "Um, negotiable? I blew a sumptuous puff of cigar smoke towards the ceiling and with the same laconicism, no, I said simply. He scratched the crown of his head with remarkable energy, then rushed at me with his hand outstretched. It's a deal, Mr. Chesterfield. 20% tomorrow, 20% in September. The balance in installments in December, January, and February, okay? Incredible, isn't it?
1: Our next uh, reader, Monsieur Ockar, Emmanuel Oka is the only member of this group who is perhaps even better known as a poet than as a novelist. His poetry is included in that fine edition uh, that Random House published uh, last year of 20th century American poetry. He was born in Cannes in 1940 and spent 16 years in Tangiers where his family had been exiled during the war. He worked towards a doctorate in history and geography at the University of Lyon and the University of Nice, and since 1977 he has been in charge of the poetry section of the Musée d'Art Moderne in Paris. Um, In his function as curator of the contemporary literature section at the Musée d'art Moderne of the city of Paris. He organizes symposia very similar to this one, um, which are centered on contemporary French and American literature. And as often as he can, he invites American writers to the symposia. Uh, among the American poets whom he has invited in the past few years are Robert Duncan, Keith Waldrop, Rosemary Waldrop, Paul Auster, Larry Egner, and Robert Creeley. He um, will read tonight from his book, which is translated in the English title, Area in the Forest of Manhattan. Unlike some of the other authors here tonight, he has been many times in the United States. This, in fact, is, is his sixth trip. New York. He spent a semester once at the International Writers Workshop at the University of Iowa, and as he tells me, I do not have the talent to invent, uh, as Roussel did, countries that I have not visited. Um, So he will uh, uh, read, Uh, he has recently, I want to add, translated into French the poetry of Charles Resnikoff, the American poet, and he feels very strong linked to the community of American poets and feels that there is a constant need to refuel uh, each tradition by increasing contact. Uh, He will read uh, a passage in French from his book, and then his translator, Rosie Sarah Rice, will read the rest in the translation which she prepared especially for tonight.
5: Shall I read in French a short, very short extract of the beginning of the book, and then Sarah will read in English. je n'aurais pas de descendance. Immobile et noir sur la terre au milieu du chemin, le scorpion balançait vers moi son dard luisant dans la douce lumière du crépuscule. Si vaine que fut sa parade guerrière, si chétive, Sa colère à l'approche de mes semelles blanches, je m'immobilisais à mon tour devant lui et j'observais longuement cette figure apeurée de la mélancolie qui me barrait la route. Oui, je demeurais là, à quelques pas du scorpion, jusqu'à ce que la peur se fût insinuée en moi aussi sûrement que l'eût fait son venin Jusqu'à ce que sa forme tourmentée eut gravé dans le cœur de l'enfant que j'étais son signe charbonneux. Et je fis demi-tour. Oui, demi-tour ce jour-là pour la première fois.
6: Okay, I'll read several sections of the first part called Zachary. (laughs) Called Zachary. Uh, The Scorpion, David, The Wedding Dress, Genealogy, The Hummingbird, Breakfast, The Abscess, In the Night, The Earrings, Letters, Fall, The Air Conditioner, and Socrat. I shall have no descendants. On the ground in the middle of the road, dark and motionless, the scorpion was swinging his shiny stinger toward me in the soft twilight. <coughs> however empty his warring display, however paltry his wrath at my approaching white soles, I nevertheless stopped before him and observed at length this frightened image of melancholy barring my way. Yes, I remained there, stev- several steps away from the scorpion, until fear had wormed itself into me as steadily as would have his poison, until his tormented shape had engraved its charred sign within the heart of the child I then was. And I turned back. Yes, on that day, for the first time, I turned back. Seated today at my long table before the window that opens onto the trees, gazing over the dense foliage, I let my thoughts wander noiselessly with the great white clouds of the end of summer. Mixed with the leaves rustling in the wind is the uninterrupted drone of the air conditioning converter, a large gridded concrete block in front of which David parks his little orange van. David, who works as a driver to pay for his ornithology studies, always good-natured, even last night, smiling through the shouts of his drunken passengers, and willing at 1 a.m. to go out of his way over a battered road through cornfields in search of a case of beer. Watching his face lit by the dashboard, it suddenly occurred to me that his fixed smile didn't augur well. But I was mistaken once again. At the wheel of his little bus, softly whistling in the night, David was thinking of nothing but the song of the birds he studies every Sunday with his girlfriend Jessica in Fields and Woods his beautiful green-eyed friend, a specialist of medieval French. Yes, Adam, Iria said to me. Language is the obstacle. I was standing against the wall in a large hall, looking at the shimmering dress spread out at my feet over the entire surface of the floor. Iria entered. Here, I told her, is your wedding dress. She looked at me radiantly and having put her hand into mine, gazed with delight at the very long embroidered train, reproducing as far as the eye could see the iridescent motive of a blue plumage resembling those one can admire on ancient Egypt's sepulchral ornaments. Then she withdrew without a word and left the room through a concealed door that I hadn't noticed. But it is a very good dream, Adam, she said to me the next day, with the same expression of joy and surprise I had seen her wearing before the stately dress. Isn't this regal train a happy omen? Shortly afterwards, she stepped out of my life as she had stepped out of my dream. Iria's name could have appeared beside mine on the final leaf of the family tree. Yes, I would have been proud to add in my fine handwriting, like the most caressing promise, her name on this last leaf where mine was inscribed 40 years ago on the day of my birth. But the small cartridge shaped like a flame holds nothing but the characters of the name Adam, my name, now the only sign of life in all this extinguished foliage. Now that the ties are undone, sorry, now that the ties are undone, Now that Ira has left with her white procession of Asia's and Oceania's, I remain alone before the barren tree whose leaves will never again carry other names. Now I can dream, and my bluish dream is interrupted only by infrequent and brief disturbances of memory which soon abate and leave no traces. David showed me to a lead container on the first floor of the Museum of Natural History. Smiling, he took a rare specimen among several rows of hummingbirds in a shallow drawer and delicately spun the stiff and tiny body body between his fingers. He pointed out the blue plumage on top of the dead bird's head and on its breast, the same iridescent blue as the marriage train of my dream. This one, he explained proudly, belongs to a variety once sought after by the Incas for their funeral garb. But perhaps reader, you don't like birds. Perhaps you think that they bring bad luck. Rest reassured, no birds inhabit my memories any longer, not a single one. Night had fallen over the trees and the great plains of the middle of the world. While listening to the ice cubes tinkle in my glass, I admire my companion's delicate nakedness, her smooth body, Kronach's small Eve. Language is the clothing, Iria, I answered, lightly touching her lips with the tips of my fingers. There is no obstacle, not the slightest obstacle. Who could ever state that Adam and Eve spoke to each other in paradise? Lowered on the silver blade, her eyes flashed with restrained anger, and her gleaming teeth sharply impressed their precise mark on the buttered toast which she put down on our, <coughs> our breakfast table. From behind my dark glasses, I watched her fingers with the translucent nails dance among the reflections of the cutlery and the china. I watched her full hair in waves over her shoulders, the nightgown's white material stretched over her breasts. You're not funny, Adam, not funny at all. I watched her beautiful pale lips move. My eye was hurting me. <clears throat> Imagine, reader, Odysseus far away from his own on a hot afternoon at the beginning of summer in the American countryside near the ocean, his right eye shut by an abscess and with wax in his ears, and you will be able to picture me rather accurately. Stretched out on my bed, I watched the rain through the the open door of my wooden shack. I could only see the green sky and the warm rain falling on the grass. Lying feverish on the sheet, thinking poorly, Occasionally engulfed by a heavy drowsiness, I was beset with ancient scents. Lime washes, dyes, blackberries squashed on the ground. Soon I saw two faraway figures slowly advancing. Aria and Zachary walking hand in hand, engrossed in a trusting conversation. He watching where he put down his child's feet, she careful to adjust her step to his. I saw them peacefully advance toward me on the wet grass. Zachary observed me saying nothing. Then looking at Ira, he asked in his whiny voice, why doesn't he speak? He comes from far away, Zach, from the other side of the ocean. He speaks a language you don't know. Is he going to die? He's resting because he's ill. That's why we're already leaving tomorrow. He must see a doctor. <coughs> Everything is silent. Everything is abnormally silent in the night. Sitting on my narrow iron bed, my eyes wide open in the darkness, I listen. Outside, the drone of the air transformer has stopped. I get up and look out the window. David's little van is no longer there. Standing in front of the window in the room next door, Iria was doing her nails. Still head bent, hair pushed sideways, she was wearing only her tiny pale blue panties, a bright spot reflected in the mirror. Adam, she said while putting on her nail polish, when will you finally decide to become an adult? It wasn't a question, of course, and the mild benevolence benevolence betrayed by her voice wasn't meant for me. The day before, I had given her a pair of earrings made of red translucent glass. Everyone was shaped like a tear. When Ira had opened the tissue wrapper, one of the earrings fell and broke. She said that she would glue it with nail polish as she had learned to do when she was in college. Then she had sharply scolded me for my irresponsibility. Instead of going to see the doctor, hadn't I strolled along Lexington Avenue to get her these earrings? I watched her in the mirror without answering. My eye was hurting and the smell of nail polish floating between us, I again thought of Zachary, small livid angel, naked in the summer rain, casting this double warning at me in his shrill peacock's voice. Go away, go away. (coughs) We must go out. We must go out now. Afterwards, it will be too late. All night, the air conditioner had fought with relative success against the overwhelming heat of the New York summer. The album of nudes women photographed by women stuck in the window to block an opening had fulfilled its temporary function as well as could be expected, and when the first gleams of dawn entered the small apartment on 86th Street, I got up and opened the window in the next room. An unexpected coolness rushed in and filled me with comfort. In the middle of perfume scents and scattered dresses, the abandoned bed cut a milky white rectangle in the morning twilight. On the inside windowsill, I recognized at their fine handwriting, my letters to Iria, casually thrown from their envelopes, the ones on top already soiled by the rain and covered with dust. I stood alone among the perfumes and the dresses in this uninhabited room, enjoying the cool air on my face and on my hands. In the other room, Iria was asleep, lying on the large crimson carpet in front of the big brick fireplace where the copper and iron shone among the ferns. Iria lay sprawled under the mirror, shrouded in the white folds of the sheet, her hair falling in dark waves onto the floor, one hand sticking out from under the sheet, a single hand in the dusk. Iria, I called softly in her sleep. We must go out right away, before the sweltering heat returns. Now that everything is over, now that the white thread of Iria's silence swept down on me in response to my own silence, I now watch for days on end behind my panoramic window pane the foliage that autumn already disturbs with its silky hues. Yes, I endlessly watch the profound stirrings of this threatened foliage where I discover numerous echoes of my presently vacant life. What thoughts, Aria, render you more desirable each day? Do me a favor, she answered in her harmonious voice. Tonight, sleep in the bed or on the sofa, but without me. Today you have your death mask on again, and I will never sleep with a dead man. Wrapped in the white sheet, a gold bracelet on her wrist, Aria slept on the large crimson carpet while the small air conditioner filled the space of night with a clamor as vast and as resonant as the oceans. On the day the first leaves came loose, flying outside my closed window, I received a visit from my friend, Sokrat. To the whimsical flight of the dead leaves, to the silent and light fall of their little funerary wings dancing before me in the transparency of the air, responded behind me, behind my slightly stooped back of a mature man, the arpeggio of precise little knocks on the front door. The knocks of my very skinny and very near-sighted Turkish friend. After all, Adam, he said to me solemnly while resting his glass on my wax table, no, you're definitely not a Mediterranean after all. From his pursed lips came the disapproving click of his tongue against his teeth. The Byzantine gaze of his thick glasses moved back and forth several times between Kronach's little Eve, my sweet companion of the high breasts, and the vast window behind which the branches stirred under a shower of golden leaves. You're ill, I'm afraid. Do you know the great deserted palaces that fall to ruins on the banks of the Bosphorus? Majestic and cold at the edge of the water, they seem supported by nothing else but their reflection. You're one of them, Adam. Aestheticism, my friend, will get the better of you faster and more surely than alcohol or the arrows of your disastrous loves. "'Beauty will prove fatal to you, "'and I can very well see that in her "'it is death that attracts you. "'So let us drink to our friendship "'and to your beautiful death, "'but don't ever tell me again "'that you are a Mediterranean.'" While blowing the white smoke of my cigarette in the direction of the window, I listened to my sententious friend without, however, losing sight of the little wood contending with fall in the kaleidoscope of my vigilant eyes. For my watchman's patience is as keen as David's. But who knows after all? Who knows?
1: Before I introduce our next reader, uh, I would like to invite uh, Regine Deforge. To just read a few paragraphs of her work in the original French, because I think this uh, bilingual system was sprung on us uh, in the last minutes, and I think she would like to read a few paragraphs in the original.
7: Uh, I am sorry, um, I don't speak English. La souffrance maître et sans larmes de Léa inquiétaient Ruth et Camille. Elle avait longtemps contemplé le cadavre rédit que le docteur Blanchard avait fait transporter sur le divan du bureau. C'est elle qui avait arrangé sur le front glacé une mèche grise, regardant ce qui avait été son père avec une sorte d'indifférence. Qui était ce vieillard rétréci aux pauvres mains débiles dont le corps mort gisait là Son père était grand et fort. Quand il la prenait dans ses bras... Elle avait l'impression d'être protégée contre le monde entier. Rien ne pouvait lui arriver. Sa main disparaissait toute entière dans la sienne, chaude, enveloppante, rassurante. Marcher auprès de lui, à travers les vignes, c'était partir à l'aventure, à la conquête de l'univers. Il parlait de la terre comme Isabelle parlait de Dieu. Pour lui, l'un et l'autre se confondaient dans une même vérité. Chez Léa, seule la foi dans la terre avait survécu. La terre, elle ne l'avait ni trahi, ni abandonnée. Quand tous avaient eu faim, c'est elle qui avait généreusement récompensé son labeur. Comme elle, Pierre Delmas avait tiré du sol de Montillac leur subsistance. Son père et la fille étaient de la même race. Alors, devant la triste dépouille, Léa sut que c'était l'image de son père debout devant les vignes qui demeurerait à jamais. Voilà, c'est tout. Merci.
1: Ylvia Muraille, who is somewhat of a girl wonder, the French uh, literary scene, her novel uh, Stairway C* Escalier C, takes place in Manhattan, a city she has never been to before this very visit. It uh, relates the ups and downs and the lives of the tenants of the stairwell C in an apartment building in Greenwich Village, and has been compared by some French critics to Truman Capote's Breakfast at Tiffany's. She feels that she had no need to come to New York to write a uh, novel uh, situated in Manhattan. She says that she knew it perfectly in her imagination, and therefore it yielded her no surprises. It was published, Escalier Seg when she was 24. It was awarded two prizes, the Prix Georges Saint and the Prix du Premier Roman. Uh, Elvire has a... Um, degree in English from Cambridge University, but not the Cambridge in England, that (coughs) extension of Cambridge University which has its branch in Paris. Uh, And Elvire is a passionate Anglophile. She loves London best of all the cities she has known because she says she loves the distance which the British hold towards others. And she also loves the excesses (coughs) of the British temperament. She lives in Paris, but dislikes it intensely. And she says she could never live in New York because it is much too windy, and wind disturbs her greatly. Uh, She uh, writes every afternoon with pencil and paper rather than pen and paper because she cannot stand the sight of a crossed-out word, and she prefers to erase it rather than cross it out. She will read from... Uh, her novel, Stairway Sea, which will be published in December of this year by Yvonne Books, Elvira Murray.
8: I read three different passages from the book. I gave up going to the innocent woods of Charhul the day I discovered that I preferred Bosch Garden of earthly delights to Renoir's little girl with a watering can. That's not simply a metaphor. Through my work as an art critic, now there's a profession, I had lost all spontaneity and all inclination towards things fresh and new. Besides, it's easier to talk of horror in all its beauty than of happiness. While I wandered about in the garden of earthly delights, my innocence had gone astray. And in choosing gardens over the woods, I was becoming truly unsufferable. That's when I decided on a trip to the country to remind me of childhood and nursery rhymes. Remote as my relatively humble dwelling in Greenwich Village may be from the towering midtown skyscrapers or the doormen and limousines of Park Avenue, it still is far from pastoral. Short on ideas, I thought I'd ask the advice of my upstairs neighbor, Colin Shepherd. Though I didn't know Colin for long. <coughs> His persistent habit of letting his bathtub run over and me often going up to rail at him. Before leaving my apartment, I paused to admire myself in the bathroom mirror. A man in his early thirties, well-built, handsome lad. I do consider myself good-looking, thanks. That's my right. Bruce raised his eyes to the ceiling, then let out a long whistle. The next chick I'll take out will have to wear feathers on two bed. And what's more, they'll have to tickle. Colin burst out laughing. What a lunacy. Oh yeah, we all have our fantasies, no? Splendid, I say. Do tell us your fantasies, Bruce. To be quite frank, my greatest fantasy ever had to do with Susie. You know Susie, that dubious Lady Forster would treat himself from time to time. I always wonder what it would be like to have a woman who looks so stupid. It fascinated me that Tanqueray could come up with something like that. I dreamed about it just just from trying to imagine what it would be like in bed. I never could be sure. So, how was it, Foster? Colossally boring, I answered. That's unbelievable. He dares to admit it. So what was there in it for you? It's absolutely indispensable to be bored from time to time. It enhances active moments. By contrast, at any rate, screwing is like eating. It's necessary, but it's rarely very good. What a cynic he can be! It's like a vice to you. Simply mind-boggling. Bruce looked at me quizzically. Sometimes I wonder if you get any joy out of life. I often have the feeling that everything bores you. Actually, you're right. Everything does bore me. Do you ever consider suicide? Yes, but that would just be as boring. And besides, I'm a coward. Okay. I stepped outdoors to throw all the junk mail into the trash. There was also a letter from my father. Leaning back against the bank of mailboxes, I read the opening. I read the opening. My dear, unworthy son. The lights went out. Someday, I'd really have to raise a row with a With the supper about that, I sighed, and they flickered back on again. But in the etcherim, I felt chills run up my spine. During the few seconds of darkness, some creature had appeared in the entrance doorway. It had all happened so rapidly, so unexpectedly, that I stood there, rooted with fear, before this apparition dressed all in black and so black itself. Then I recognized Mrs. Bernard. Oh, hello, I said clearing my throat. You surprised me. I didn't enjoy you come in. I managed to give her a smile. She had not moved an inch, but stared at me out at the dark pupils all by hidden by the yellow wrinkles of her eyelids. This first time I was, our eyes met, I saw the tears moistening the lashes. Slowly turning her head away, she moved towards the stairs. Gripping the railing with bony fingers, she went up two steps and stopped, Her face toward the ground, her lips trembled, and I knew that she was going to speak to me. I would like to have died in Jerusalem, she she said. I tried to think of some reply, something to comfort her. I failed. I watched her slow ascent to her apartment. I hadn't done a thing. I hadn't done a thing.
1: Our last reader, Jean Eschnoz, tells me that the principal reason why he titled his novel Cherokee is simply that he loves the sound, Cherokee, no other reason, no symbolic reason. It was still uh, won another prestigious prize, the Prix Médici, last year, and its ironic sparse style have led some critics to compare it to Marcel Aimé's style and other (laughs) critics to compare it to Raymond Queneau. And still another critic has written, I quote, that uh, Eschnow's work is wonderfully liberated from the academic terrorism which has marked many French novels of the past two decades. Um, Eschnow's Uh, was born in the south of France, came to Paris in 1970, and although his literary calling came very early to him, he received his academic degrees from the Sorbonne in psychology and sociology. This is, I believe, his uh, second trip to the United States, uh, and his main impression upon first coming here is that the rhythm of the city was both more rapid and gentler than he had expected. Um, critics also have described his novel as a roman noir, a romantic detective story, but it's always interesting to hear the author's own descriptions. Eschnau's uh, own description of uh, Cherokee is that it is concerned with the double movement of search and flight. It is an adventure novel in which the adventure occurs in the phrasing of the text, in the texture of the text, as well as in the narrative line. Eschnoz is a great fan of American jazz. His favorite musician is Theolonius Monk. And one of the motivating forces in the novel Cherokee is a lost record of an American jazz recording, which, again, some French critics have tried to trace to Charlie Parker, but which the author denies being Parker's. He prefers to keep it, its identity hidden and let each reader interpret its source as he or she wishes, an added twist to the suspense of the novel. Um, it is an, an interesting to note that Ishnos detects a trend in contemporary French novels towards the rediscovery of pleasure in the reading of novels. He describes it as a new concern for the rhythm of texts and actions and a more erotic pact between the reader and the text, a more sensual pleasure in the pleasure of the text, uh, Jean Echenoz will read from his novel Cherokee, which we published here by uh, Godine Press in eighty-six.
9: About the chapter, chapter five. Uh, once upon a time, there were two men named Ripper and Bock, the kind of tall skinny guy and little fat guy that you don't hear about anymore. Um, both were dressed in dark suits that had been fitted, Rippers to make him appear taller, box to make him s- seem less fat. The latter was sporting a white creamy tie on a chocolate-colored polyester shirt, which made him look like something halfway between a pimp and breakfast. (laughs) Uh, Ripper was wearing a sky blue polo shirt of 100 percent cotton, whose open collar revealed a little gold chain with a minuscule religious medallion. In his own different way, he also looked like a pimp, and yet they did not practice this particular profession. They sat face to face, each one behind his desk, and drank green vodka made in France from paper cups. They didn't speak. They were pensive. On their desks lay newspapers, scissors, press clippings, as well as photographs, letters, photocopies of letters, as well as ashtrays, lamps, telephones, as well as pencils, keys, empty beer cans, notebooks, cigarette packs, disposable lighters. The room was very dark. It was the former living room of a large apartment converted into office space, still with a dusty cascade of a non-working chandelier on the ceiling and the colossal ballast of a white marbled fireplace sculpted by a twisted twisted sorry, to look like mutated meringue. An advertising calendar courtesy of the Smetana Company was tacked to the yellow walls, along with a map of Paris and environs. Near the door, a last shelf sacked under the weight of phone books, road maps, the 1975 edition of the Michelin Guide, folders and catalogues, several spy novels and comic books for adults. A Life of Dostoevsky by Henri Troya and a special issue of a motor magazine devoted to compact Japanese imports. They were pensive. They drank without looking at each other. When a voice shouted something from the other side of the wall, they got up. They opened a door. Good morning, chief, they said. Good morning, said the chief. They sat down. Business is looking up, announced the chief. Spielvogel just called and Duga confirmed this morning. We're also staying with the Polneu. Where's Brigitte? In Saint Genevieve, replied Bok. Perfect, says the boss. She'll take care of Polneu. Repair will meet Dugas as soon as possible and Spielvogel expects you in one hour, Bok. All that's left is this well business, and it's going very slowly, very slowly. ''Did you finally think something?'' ''Everybody's dead,'' said Ray in a plaintive voice. ''The heirs died without leaving any heirs. There's no more family. The house is empty. The archives were lost in the fire. It's fucked.'' ''If you ask me,'' expressed Bok, ''it's no use to keep looking.'' ''I know,'' said the chief, ''but the lawyer keeps paying.'' But you're the boss, recalled Bork. Why don't you put Brigitte on the case, part-time? I told you she's going to take care of the Polner case, cried the chief. The client is paying for the service, right? The least he can expect is to get something for his money. I must say, I find this unbelievable. Here we are short of manpower. It's all fucked, uh, repeated the It's hopeless. You can't think of anyone to take care of it, insinuated the boss. It's not hard. All you've got to do is pretend. Okay, so we find nothing, but at least we will look like we are looking. Can't you think of anybody? No, said Bok, I can't. How about if you give the lawyer his money back? Out of the question, said the chief. We could always use my brother, proposed repair. Out of the question, said the chief. Behind them, they heard the sound of a door. Here's Brigitte, announced spoke. Maybe she knows somebody. The office door opened, but it wasn't Brigitte. It was a stranger. He had knocked. They must not have heard. He had left himself in. He was looking for the manager. That's me, acknowledged the chief. What can I do for you? Fernand sent me, said the stranger. Fernand, from Ivry. The one with the books. He mentioned you might have some work. Oh, yes, come in, said the chief. Sit down. I'm Benedetti. And I'm Chav, said the stranger. You couldn't have come at a better time, said Bob, getting up. At the beginning of chapter two, George Chav owned the blue German automobile that often broke down. When it broke down, George Chav walked as he had been doing that particular day down Rue du Temple when he met Véronique. In fact, this happened with great simplicity. For example, he had asked her if she had the time. She had answered that her watch was fast. He had protested that any time would do. <laughs> Shortly thereafter, he knew that her name was Véronique. He had walked with her a moment up to the square du Temple, in which a variety of trees are planted. He had invited her for a drink, had wanted to give her his address, had searched his pockets without finding any paper other than a new metro ticket, while she had had only red lipstick to write with in compatible formats. She had said that she would remember the address. Tomorrow at 3 o'clock, they had parted company, had each turned back towards the other, She had been wearing a corduroy skirt laced up on one side, a jacket of heavy beige wool, and now it was tomorrow at two, and George was already sitting near his window. He lived at the end of Rue Oberkampf in a building adjoining the Winter Circus. The tenants came from a large number of places. Depending on their respective longitudes and habits, Their daily schedules overlapped, opposed, or coincided in an uninterrupted cycle, like a permanent and immobile difference in time zone. Every instant was a counterpoint of Egyptian, Korean, Portuguese, Serbian, or Senegalese words, and music that intertwined, broke one against the other, like grains in a mill, And above all this, on certain evenings, rose the collected trumpetings of elephants from the nearby circus, the love cries of lynx. And over the polychromatic smoke of the building's kitchen, whose open windows also let out lively conversations in the light of nickel bulbs, what superimposed the menagerie's spicy aroma like the olive in a martini.
1: So on behalf of Penn I thank you all very much, and I thank also uh, the cultural offices of the French Embassy for making this evening possible with such good organization and such generosity. And I remind you, those of you who came late, that tomorrow evening at 7.30 p.m. at the auditorium of the City University of New York, a graduate center 33 west 42nd street a panel discussion on new trends in french literature with our french guests and chaired by the american novelist jerome cheren and we hope to see you there tomorrow thank you